to me, in some ways, feels like it's ingrained in the American spirit. You know, this idea of like reinvention, of leaving the past behind. And, and I think in some ways, because of that mythology as part of kind of the American myth, that has given people a feeling like they can cover over some of the uglier parts to keep that kind of ideal American dream bastion of democracy front and center. Welcome to the... (laughs) No, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, How about this? (laughs) No, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. It's always fun when I get to talk with one of my favorite people. I've known Nicholas Smith for almost 10 years, and she's easily one of the most innovative, creative people I've ever had the chance to work with. It's team members like Nicola that allowed my last company, Engage, to be so successful. In this episode, Nicola and I talk about her story, which starts in South Africa, and goes all the way to current time where she's building an amazing, and more importantly, authentic business. Here we go. So today I get the great benefit to uh, chat with one of my favorite people, um, Nicholas Smith. Tell everybody who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. And I love chatting with you. So this is a doubly fun uh, opportunity. Um, I am Nicholas Smith and I am the CEO of Rebel and Reason. We are actually now doing some full-service marketing offerings, so we can chat about the the evolution that's happened over the past few months with my company. Um, And I'm really into sci-fi, I'm really into history, um, and I love geeking out about the future and emerging tech and all kinds of cool stuff. So... I'll take your space questions, I'll take your literature questions, whatever weird path we end up going down on this conversation. Yes, I know you're I know you've got great range because I remember when when we first met and I think that was when you were interviewing for the the head of innovation at Engage, is that right? Um I don't think there was a job yet. Right. I think you and I were introduced by Lizzie. Oh, and right. We chatted, and then you came back to me and said, "Hey, what if I created this role?" And I was like, "Yes, where do I sign?" Yeah, and so. it was. Be- and I always like to tell the story about um, we were talking about digital marketing and social media and all these boring yet somehow innovative things in in the marketing world. And and you were like, "Well, what do you think about robots?" <laughs> and I was like, well, "Robots." 
And then you went into this whole thing about like future of robotics, I think. And I was just like, all right, we need to work together. <laughs> I know. And I'm so glad that I found a kindred spirit in exploring some of those crazy ideas that we really got to play with and um, bring to the table for clients. It was uh, some of the most rewarding work I've gotten to do. So, Oh, yeah. Well, I had a ton of fun, too. So I've, I'm holding here. Can you um, do you know what this is that I'm holding? No, this some is kind Vector. of little robot. Yeah, it's Vector. Um, you can see his eyes. And of course, Hi, people listening can't. He's awesome. He he crawls around my desk. Um, he can recognize my kids. He's he's got some cool little functions. But so, am I the only one of us that has a robot? Uh, right now, yeah, yeah. I do I not currently have any robots, but it's it's partially driven by my um, lack of trust in technology companies currently. So what do you mean? You know, you know evil? You don't trust that? Uh, you know, they got rid of that. So yeah, I think that right. was kind of indicative of the direction they were heading in. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all turns out. You know, I think when you have to say do no evil, um, I think about, actually, it's funny, you were around Engage when we had to create the no assholes rule mm -hmm. um, and then start getting people out. I always think it's too late. Um, if you If you have to have a motto that's like do no evil, like reminding people, hey, let's not be evil. I feel like that's probably, you're probably too far gone. You know, what's interesting is a lot of the brand work we've been doing, um, we're looking at values and I'm kind of at that point where I feel like there are some table stakes things that you shouldn't have to say because they should just be the baseline requirement of having employees or working with people like respect. Like I, I feel very strongly like brands need to remove some of what I call like the table stakes values and they need to really focus on, you know, what are those differentiators? And I like, I actually like the no assholes rule because I also think it, it sets a line in the sand for people who are applying. Like you kind of know if you're an asshole, like you, you know <laughs> if you're an asshole, right? Like you're not totally oblivious to that. I, so I like that it sets it out there and kind of says, hey, if you're this type of person, this probably isn't the place for you. Okay. As yeah. long as you stick to it and you actually enforce it. Yeah, I can buy, I can buy that. Although I think you're being generous that most assholes know that they're an asshole. I'm not, I'm not certain. I think deep down, deep down, yeah. unconsciously they, maybe. Way deep down. All right, let, let's back up because one of the things that I um, like to do on this podcast is get into people's origin stories, um, if you will. Um, people that I think are doing amazing things, people that are, are living purposeful lives and digging into maybe how they got to today um, and then certainly where they're headed. So um, where did you grow up? <laughs> So I grew up in South Africa. I was born there. Um, I am white for our listening audience, like very, very, very pale and very blonde. Um, but I was born in South Africa, grew up there until I was almost 14 and then immigrated here to the United States. Um, during the time that I lived in South Africa, um, majority of that was during apartheid. Uh, so I was actually there living through the end of apartheid, not just as a 
structure and a system, but literally as the legal construct by which the entire country was run. Um, and, you know, I know we're not necessarily talking about this today, but one of the things that was really interesting for me, even just right now with current events, is growing up as a white person in South Africa during apartheid, I have always been overtly aware of whiteness as a privilege because it was literally codified by law where I grew up. You knew that if you were white, you could do X, Y, Z. If you were white, you had these benefits. If you were white, it meant X. Um, and so it's been really interesting for me to watch this racial, racial conversation kind of play out in the United States, where I think many white people have never actually had to confront that or be or even be conscious of it, right? Because white's the default. So once again, I know we're going to get into lots of different topics anytime you and I get on a call. But um, but yeah, so it's it's been um, it, it was an interesting journey moving from South Africa to the United States. Um, so so I do want to dive into that just a little bit. Um, so if w when was the last time you were back? Actually, last November, we took um, our kids um, and we took them to South Africa for the first time. And are there, are there um, what should I say, like monuments or museums or how does, how does the culture today wrestle with, you know, apartheid from the back, the past? So, yeah, there's monuments to Mandela, to Desmond Tutu, to some of the people who were involved in dismantling apartheid. There are museums. Um, where it's recognized, for example, in the same way that the Holocaust Museum, if you've ever been there in D.C., um, it doesn't hide any of the brutality. So there's a lot of that. Um, and there's a general recognition, even amongst, you know, the general populace of the fact that, you know, this was a system of oppression, I don't think that you'll find people in South Africa who would say, no, no, I mean, apartheid was fine, or, you know, people actually liked it because they at least had food. It, it doesn't, people don't tend to try and justify it the way people still try and tend to justify slavery. Well, it was just economics. It was just, no, it was wrong. White people subjugated black people based on the color of their skin, raped, killed, murdered them. We acknowledge that. And part of it is because we actually, at the end of apartheid, went through a legal process of really reconciliation around, it was called the truth and reconciliation process. It was broadcast live on television. Um, I assume it was shown around the world or parts of it were accessible. Uh, this was obviously before the internet was widely available, and um, there was an overt recognition by not just the institutions, but some of the actual individuals. So similar to, you know, some of the the trials that happened at Nuremberg. Um, so I, I think that's the big difference: is America has never acknowledged or reconciled the past. And South Africa, for all its flaws, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would say, "Oh no, it, nothing was a problem back then." Right. So, have you read Just Mercy? I have not. 
Um, so Brian Stevenson, who, who wrote that book and, um, he, uh, you know, he's created the legacy museum, um, in Montgomery. Uh, and I got a chance to, to hear him talk. Um, and he, and he created the equal justice Institute, um, or initiative. Um, but one of the things he said was he compared the United States to South Africa and to, to Nazi Germany and, and basically said what you just said. He said, the difference is we've never reconciled it. We've never, you know, gone through a process of openly, um, sort of embracing, this is our past and we need to, we need to understand that. And he said, you know, he, he went, um, to Germany and, you know, the first thing he gets in the cab, it's like, do you want to go to the Holocaust museum? It's like, they take people there. It's like, because they know this history is important so that we never, you know, never go down this path again. And that's a major difference in, in the U S which is why he created the, the legacy museum, which, you know, it's, I think it's the only slavery museum, um, in the country. And I, I mean, that museum is just amazing. If you are within driving distance, you should yeah. go and check it out, but it is a very, very emotional experience. It's yeah, it's really tough, but um, it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, to me, it's, it's in some ways feels like it's ingrained in the American spirit. You know, this idea of like reinvention of leaving the past behind, you know, that people left behind the past and the old world, they created New York and New Hampshire. And, you know, and and I think in some ways, because of that mythology as part of kind of the American myth, that has given people a feeling like they can cover over some of the uglier parts to keep that kind of ideal American dream bastion of democracy front and center, you know? So. Agreed. Okay. We got deep there right out of the game. I know. I know. Of course, of course we're going to do that. You and me. Of course we did. Surface level conversation. We'll, we'll bounce between, you know. Super um, deep and other stuff. Lighthearted. Lighthearted. All right. So, so you show up in the United States at 14. Where, where, what, uh, what city, what state? Um, here in Georgia. So okay. What brought I you guys here? Georgia. I had never heard of Atlanta. What I knew about America was basically like you have New York where there's like gangster type people and like it's a city. You have Florida where Disney World is. You have Texas where there's cowboys. Cowboys, yeah. And then you have like California surfer hippie people. And that's yeah. that's all of America. That's it. That's the whole thing. You know, what's funny about that. We went to Edinburgh, uh, in 2018, 2018, and we were in a cab. And so I was asking the, uh, cab driver, he, he really wanted to go to America. And I sort of said, why? And he goes to see the Cowboys. <laughs> like what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, his vision of the U S was Cowboys uh, and New York. He wanted to go to New York Cowboys. And I think he mentioned the grand Canyon. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Yeah. Cowboys. <laughs> yep. Cowboys. So, but so what brought you to Georgia? Um, well, I, my parents decided to move to Georgia. Um, there was actually a large South African population. So I'm also Jewish. I'm a white African Jew. <laughs> um, we do exist, magical unicorn. Um, but um, my parents knew some other South Africans. Um, there are a couple of places in the U.S. that uh, a lot of South Africans immigrated to after the end of apartheid 
um, you know, there was a lot of instability. Um, there was a lot of violence. Um, and many people decided to leave at that time because for the most part, you weren't wondering if something was going to happen to you. You were wondering when it was going to happen. Right. Um, and so a lot of people started getting out and, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a South African community here. It's not as cold as some other parts of the country, which is very important, if you meet South Africans, we generally do not like the cold. And yes, I will speak for the whole country just <laughs> on that one point. Um, but uh, yeah, found myself in Georgia in the South. I had no, I had never heard of the Civil War. I had no construct for American history. I knew like George Washington had been the president and Clinton was the president when we immigrated. Um, I knew nothing about your system of government or the f three branches or that's okay. Cause we don't either or the States or anything. Yeah. None, none of that. No. So. Um, so, okay. So you show up, you went to high school. What was it? Atlanta or what part of Georgia? I went to high school in Walton up in Marietta, Walton high school. Um, that's where I found my group of people who were art and theater people and um, got through the next few years, actually finished high school early, went to college early, um, start, went to Georgia State. Uh, as I was telling you before, I didn't know that there were scholarships and those types of uh, financial vehicles available. And I just knew I didn't want to start my life out in debt. So I decided to go to a state school, um, the Hope Scholarship, actually. Yeah. And uh, three years in, I kind of looked at what I was doing. I was a double major, film and anthropology. And I had started working in the film industry, um, never in front of the camera, always behind, mostly doing production design. So sets and props and special effects, makeup. And, you know, I have a recipe for fake blood. If you ever need one of those, <laughs> you, you've got it. Um, and I basically uh, went um, and did a tour with a punk band. Um, I was running B-roll camera while, I think it was spring break at school. And so I went on tour with a friend of mine who was being brought on to shoot footage for their EPK, which is an electronic press kit for anyone who doesn't know. I don't even know if those exist anymore. Because you know you don't you're not sending out CDs to people, um, and basically uh, the band was dropping me back off at the airport for me to fly back to Atlanta because um, spring break was over and my leg of the tour was done. And as I walked into the airport, the second plane hit the second tower, um, wow. and it was nine eleven. And so after hours, I ended up getting them to come back and pick me up. I had to go on with them to New Orleans, um, ended up getting a train back to Atlanta after a few days. And I just realized there's always going to be a reason not to do something. There's always going to be a reason to wait. But the reality is you never know 
what's coming and you'll never be completely ready. And I looked at the fact that I was already working in the film industry, being paid, and I was paying to go to school so I could get a job in the industry I was already working in. And I realized it was circular thinking and it made no sense for the path I was on. And to uh, my parents' dismay, I dropped out of school. I had a, a guaranteed gig on a movie for two weeks. And I packed up my car and I drove to Los Angeles without ever actually having been there. Um, stayed in a hotel on Hollywood Boulevard, as one does when one moves to L.A. without knowing anything about L.A. <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Um, and then... How, how old were you? Um, I was 19. Wow. And and just, just pause for a second. How different would your life have been if the movie scene in Atlanta was what it is now? Oh, you'd probably, I'd still probably be in that industry, honestly. You probably would. You'd be dominating it, but you'd probably be in it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> so you're 19 in LA for a two week gig? No, a two month gig, two months. but I moved out there. Like I packed up my stuff and I had moved. Um, so it was just about getting more jobs. How do I start to get into the industry? And, you know, had some friends introduce me to friends who eventually became roommates. I rented a room from one of the other guys on the crew. Um, he had a roommate who was going away for the summer. So I subleased literally someone else's mattress. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, again, yeah. as one does when one moves to LA and drops out of school. So were, your parents weren't, weren't thrilled with that, I'm guessing. What, what did they do? What were, what were their occupations? Oh, well, my dad has run his own business um, for as long as I can remember. So he he runs his own business and um, he, yeah, no, they were not particularly pleased with my decision. Even though he's an entrepreneur? Even though he's an entrepreneur, he would say, um, you know, we butt heads a lot, probably because we're too similar in some ways. So, sure. yeah. Gotcha. So, all right. So I also want to ask, so I, now I, you know, I know where this story leads. So, um, there's now there's, uh, one piece of the story makes sense. Um, I forgot that your father was an entrepreneur. Um, tell me about your parents or your family's, um, like given certainly where, where you guys came from was being a part of things politically, getting involved in social campaigns, caring about those things. Was that something that you were brought up with? Did you get that from them? Did, was that discussed at the house? Not even remotely. They were, my parents have never, my mother has become more politically active now as she's gotten older. Um, but no, none of that is a part of our history. It is not, um, a part of anything my parents have ever done, to my knowledge. Um, they didn't do anything of that nature in South Africa. And, you know, they're good people and they give to charity and stuff, but that has never been their inclination. Um, for me, it was, I think, the, the things that 
pushed me into being as opinionated <laughs> and, and active as, as I am um, are really going through the end of apartheid. And, and as I grew older, understanding what that really meant and understanding how much of my childhood was not normal um, and how, you know, had, I, I always think had I been more aware, I'd want to speak out. I mean, I was 14 years old, so I probably, there was limited things that I could do to stop the apartheid government. But um, I guess it was just the fact that I had been, I'd lived it and yet was so blind to understanding that, that, that it was a, a system constructed for a very specific purpose, um, which again, sounds ridiculous when I can acknowledge the privilege of the system. But as a kid, I didn't really, we didn't have, you know, the, the media was, was censored. So we got certain television shows, we got certain news. I didn't know that there was a world in which, you know, the, the basic foundational understanding was different. Um, so it was kind of a mind fuck, to be honest. Sorry, I don't yeah. know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. But I guess you know me <laughs> well enough to know what you're getting into. Our sponsors are going to be so upset. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this this is fascinating to me because, um, first of all, my father was an entrepreneur. Um, and, and, and like you, my family never talked about, you know, sort of politics or social causes. Again, I would say like you, my parents are good people. They contributed to charity, but that was not, you know, something we talked about. Um, and like you, I grew up, um, in a, in a, you know, not, not quite to the same level, obviously, but like in a racially divisive community here in Atlanta, my high school went from freshman year you know, I don't know, 90% white to, um, uh, less than 50% white by the time I graduated. I mean, we had riots, we had all this stuff. And cause I, and I don't, I wasn't processing any of it. I wasn't seeing it. And, you know, while you say that, you know, the, the media was controlled, obviously that wasn't the case in the United States, but we both know the media slants and, and, and paints a certain picture. And even in high school, I wonder if this is for you. I was very specifically taught that, um, the dumb answer to why we fought the civil war was slavery. The actual real answer was states' rights, and it's a noble thing to fight for states' rights. Um, and lots of people like to try to tell you it's about slavery, but it's really not. I mean, I was taught that was the smart answer and wrote essays about that. And and it wasn't until well after college I was like, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Well, that was one of the things. I mean, again, I had no construct for the civil war. So my family didn't fight in it. We weren't on one side or the other. There's no family law or history or mythology. I've never learned about it before. My parents didn't really know much about it. Um, so for me, you know, what I was taught in high school was exactly what you're saying. And it was very much presented as this is, this is fact. This is the reality and in the North, they like to say X because of all of these reasons. And really, it wasn't about slavery. It was economics, right? Like, it was really just about economics. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to L.A. and started encountering people who had obviously gotten a very different telling of history of the Civil War that I also was exposed to that idea that, wow, like, 
you know, and again, I, I had already been exposed to that earlier on. And I think it just added to my cynicism. Right. And, and really, I, I'm very interested in history and I read a lot of historical fiction. I read a lot of history books. And I, I think it just drives home the point that history is written by the winners, you know, like and while the South lost, they still seem unable to admit that in the South in certain places. So, like, I think they're still holding on to that <laughs> mythology, unfortunately. It's so sad. Well, what's interesting about about that is I I'm I'm on a big kick right now, reading about the the Revolutionary War um, and Hamilton. Of course, are you into Hamilton? Do oh you... yes, we are. The soundtrack is playing probably in my house right now downstairs. It's a problem in my house. It's so always on. I can't get it out of my head. Um, what's mean, your favorite? What's your favorite song? If oh, I mean, in the room where it happened. Like, how can you not? Oh, really? That's your favorite song. Yeah. Oh, oh no. Um, mine is you the one that disappointed. I feel like I just disappointed you. <laughs> no, that's a great one. <laughs> that's a great one. Um, mine is satisfied. I that's love satisfied. Gosh, it's so good. But um, it's also so. What I'm doing is I I read um, 1776, but I'm I'm reading. George Washington's bio and Hamilton's bio mm -hmm. at the same time, at the same time period. So I'll read like ahead a year and then I'll go flip to the other guys. But what's interesting is I have several friends um, from England and they didn't study the revolutionary war growing up at all. Like my, fr my friend was like, Oh yeah, it wasn't until college. I even really knew there was a revolutionary war. Like I didn't, and of course they don't call it that. I don't know what they call it, but uh, it's funny how, how, how the history is of the Americans. <laughs> right, right. And it is funny though, just not to go too far off on a, but like you hear the King song in Hamilton and you're like, yeah, that is kind of true. It's like, I thought we had an arrangement. <laughs> you were us and we and now suddenly not. But anyways, I digress. Uh, the, 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 everybody tells their history differently. So um, there's so much to get to and, and so little time. So I'm going to jump if it's all right from, yeah which is a, which is a, is a crazy jump because there's good stories, I'm sure all the way in there, but you're, you're 19, you're in Los Angeles. And then, um, a couple years later, you and I meet <laughs> and work together mm -hmm. and engage. Um, at this point you're fully in, I would say marketing, but sort of the innovative side of marketing for sure. Um, we worked together for many years. Um, you have started this amazing company and I, and I want to hear about, um, where, where you got the courage? Um, cause I think it's courageous, especially, um, you know, as you have a family and, 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 uh, you know, your life is developed to start a company for the first time, but talk to me about that process. Um, and, uh, I guess I'll ask what took you so long. Um, I guess I had seen my dad struggle with elements of entrepreneurship and I didn't really want to deal with those things. Um, and then I had a number of experiences after um, I left Engage where I just found myself in companies that had what I would consider bad leadership, uh, lack of structure. Um, they lacked some of those basic values like respect, you know, um, and I took a job that I thought was going to be different. I had a couple of experiences that were similar. I took a job that I thought this will be a very different experience. 
And it was. Um, and it was so negative that it made me honestly just feel like if this guy can run a company for 17 years and employ all these people, and this is how he thinks about business, then at a minimum, I can start a company that just supports me. Like surely, it, so some people there, there's this, they were highly inspired by this amazing person. I feel like I was surrounded by amazing people like you. And I mean, like all of these people I know who are amazing entrepreneurs. And I always felt like, I don't know if I have the thing that they have. I don't know if I want it bad enough. And so my story is almost the opposite where it's like, I wasn't inspired by someone amazing. I was inspired by the mediocrity of this man and the fact that he was still successful. And I was like, well, damn it. Now I don't have a choice. Now I have to start a business and at least just, just, see what happens. Um, and clearly, awesome. as with my story about LA, I will jump into the unknown. Um, and I figure, you know, what's that saying? I'll, I'll either learn to fly or something will catch me. <laughs> I don't know if I know that one. I like that. Yeah. Um, Okay. Got it. I love that. I, I have not heard anyone start a company because of how badly someone else was running a company. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. When you, um, when you told me, um, you were doing that, uh, it just seemed so natural. It was almost like, well, yeah, of course you should be doing your own thing and building your own amazing business. And, and what I've really respect. So, um, t t tell, uh, tell real quick, um, the original founding of like what you were going to be doing and if that's changed today. And, and then I want to talk about the, the, the sort of spirit of the voice, but yeah. let's start with like how you started. So when I started, I thought I would be doing more um, marketing innovation consulting, similar to what we had been doing at Engage and what our team had led. Um, what I found was that that for whatever reason was not a market I, that people were really coming to me for. That wasn't what they what they would call me for. They were calling me for strategy. Um, and so I shifted about a year in to just change all of our messaging and everything to focus more on doing brand strategy and marketing strategy. Um, and we had really good growth and success with that, honestly, until COVID. Um, at which point all of these big projects where we were looking at around, you know, 30,000 minimum for strategy. We're not talking any execution, no creative, no buying, nothing, just us putting together the most solid, well thought out strategy you will ever find. Um, <laughs> the guarantee. No, um, but, you know, from being able to charge um, that kind of money for really mid tier to enterprise level brands, um, all of those opportunities disappeared. Um, which makes sense when you just look at what's happened to advertising budgets in general. So what for a, a few weeks, I was really worried about where we were going to go um, and then decided to shift into doing uh, like creating basically a product package at a lower, much lower price point, um, looking at the business differently and thinking more about volume than about, you know, just kind of maximum deal size? Where can we build efficiencies? Where can we templatize a process or something like that? So it makes it easier for our team um, to do the work and to still deliver a really high quality product, 
but where we can reduce the amount of time that has to go into it. So, you know, the basic stuff. And um, we've brought on about nine or 10 new clients in the past three months. Um, Lots of different industries, lots of different businesses. My margins are completely different. Um, (laughs) And so now we're we're basically doing uh, full service digital agency um, services. So yeah, I mean, I think you have to to social to, you know, paid media. Right, right. And I've seen that. And I think it makes sense because, you know, you've got to, um, you've got to evolve, you've got to be what your client needs, if, if you can do it, and you have experience in all those things. And I know that one of the things I've really respected and actually learned from you as you started your business is um, finding you, you did a really good job from day one, finding partners and also outsourcing um, to whether it's a virtual assistant or a service or something and saying, you know, this can be automated. Um, and, and you've done a really good job with that. Um, and and it usually takes people a long time to get to that point. You were sort of right out of the gate. And here's, here's how I get this done. And I throw this here and this group does it or this person was that, um, was that new to you? to just jump into uh, essentially outsourcing anything but the core? Um, I mean, having worked at agencies, you know, I often had other teams that we were collaborating with, whether it was a research team or some other team providing data, you know, the client team providing data. Um, So that having other people manage parts of that process has always been Mm -hmm. part of the way I worked, as is building partnerships. Um, you know, I came into the marketing and advertising industry after working in film without a degree. So not only did I not have any kind of paper, I literally have still have never taken a marketing class besides the ones I've taught. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't even understand the vernacular. I didn't know what a CPM was. I didn't know what SAS meant. I did like nothing. I knew nothing. And I guess I have always thrown myself into just kind of learning what I don't know. Um, it's, it's the only reason I've been successful in my career, because many of the jobs that I've had were roles that I created with someone else, but um, they didn't exist before. So I kind of like playing in the places where there's no roadmap. And so for me, I just was thinking about this business very differently from the onset. Um, I didn't, I still don't know exactly what the end game is, which I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs who will tell you, well, you need to know, do you want to sell? Do you want to do this? Do you want, and I, that is just not how I live my life. Like I know the general direction I'm going in, it's like, I'm like, I'm going to go West. Maybe I'll stop in Austin. Maybe I'll stop in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll just keep going across the ocean. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Yeah. Um, maybe all three. And I'll just take it in, in legs, you know? So for me, um, in some ways, the business itself is a bit of an experiment. I like to say, like, we should always be willing to be our own guinea pig. Um, and therefore, when we work with partners, we also tell them that. So if there's something new that the team that's going to be help, you know, that helped us originally build our website that they want to try. Well, we are more than happy to be the guinea pig for something cool and interesting and new. And that's yeah. always just been, I guess, my approach in some ways to the world, but certainly to to business is let's try it. If it doesn't work, we won't continue doing it. It, it doesn't feel like it's a. 
I, I guess I don't put too much weight into those things, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, to, to each his own. I'm very much a long-term planner. Where is this thing headed? <laughs> and 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 yet plenty have been successful not doing that. Um, you, One of the things I really, I personally respect a lot about um, the voice of your company is that it seems to be um, very comfortable tackling issues, um, social issues. Um, and that that's been an evolution, right? Like, I don't think you came out of the gates swinging quite as, as, uh, hard as you are now, right? Not as hard as we are now. We, we always, um, leaned into, you know, issues like, uh, equality and equity. And I mean, I, I like to say like, if you were going to describe our brand, um, in a sentence, not in relation to what we do, but just the brand, we're like feminist punk rock in space. Oh man, that's so cool. So that's <laughs> like like that's kind of always who we've been as a brand. And so like that gives us a lot of freedom actually. Yeah. We're able yeah, yeah, to yeah. Lean into certain issues in a way that a brand honestly that didn't even have the word rebel might not be able to lean into it. You know, not only do we lean into it, but we lean into it with a pretty aggressive tone. Um, yeah. which again would not work for a lot of other brands, but that's part of who we are is we, w- if you're our client, we're going to tell you the truth about what's going to work best. We're going to bring you the best solutions. We're going to be transparent and honest, even if it's something you don't necessarily want to hear. You know, if, if we're going to talk about social issues, we're going to be honest. We're going to stand by what we believe and, you have a choice to not follow us or not work with us. And right. I would rather you not work with us. Right. Right. Like if, if you, if you aren't uncomfortable with where the country's heading right now, please don't contact my company. Like I don't want to work with you. I'm not interested in working with people who can, Oh, both sides. Like, no, not now, not right now. Yeah. There's good and bad and you can, it, you can choose to work with us or not. And I'm, Like, I literally don't want those people as my clients. They would hate me. I would hate them. They would hate our process. They would hate what we delivered. And I'm never going to shut up about doing the right thing and and using whatever vehicle or platform I have at my disposal to try and get the word out and help other people, make it easier for other people to do the right thing. Yeah, that's that's so wonderful. So obviously, so many people are too worried about not getting that one deal, um, and so they they hide back, they hold back, or they don't see things the way that that we do. So we're doing this a very similar thing where we're being uh, much more vocal about what we care about and the issues we stand for. And yeah, to, I, I've said the same thing to my team. I'm like, I, you know, if somebody's offended because we're trying to help with voter registration, I don't want to work with them. Like, uh, you know, that should not be controversial. No, the things that you mentioned, equality, equity, these should not be controversial things. And, uh, I just, but it's, it's rare, the brands that really do step out and, and especially, you know, small companies like ours. So I, I really respect that you guys do that. Well, I feel like I have, uh, like a sister brand partner when I see all of the things that you're doing as well. And I know, you know, a lot of that honestly also came from working with you and just seeing how you were very intentional about what the company was focused on, what we were supposed to be, how people were supposed to treat each other. A lot of that 
you, out of everyone I've worked for, honestly, you are the best example of someone who put the most intention into that on the, on the upfront. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It was a great time at Engage. I wish I had done many things differently. Um, I wish I had, uh, maybe we'll work together again one day (laughs) and we can, we can both be the new versions of ourselves. Yes, we can absolutely (laughs) do that. So one of the things that I've noticed, um, in this new world that we're in is that you've taken back to art and I've seen some of the stuff that you've created. Talk to me about that. It sounded like you said um, you found that your art community when you came to the States and that was a a community that, you know, um, embraced you. Is that the case? And talk to me about getting back into it now. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, visual art was always kind of an emotional outlet. And so in high school, it was a, you know, I was in National Art Honors Society. I went to Governor's Honors Program for art. Um, everything I did was connected to visual art. It was also probably the most um, emotionally tumultuous time of my life. And then, um, you know, I have kids. I'm busy. I'm running a company. I haven't done any art in many, many, many years. And with you know, quarantine and lockdown and COVID and the general state of the world. um, I just found myself gravitating back towards doing art. And now I'm addicted again. So I'm working on like four pieces right now. Um, And so part of it is it's, it's an emotional crutch for me, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) art. Um, But Mm. I also think you know, the pieces that I'm playing with are very much connected to what's happening in the world. And um, they're pretty dark. I'm not going to lie. They're not light, fluffy portraits of whatever. (laughs) Um, They're not landscapes or, you know, serene, uh, abstract pictures you're going to look at. But, um, But yeah, it's like, what I keep joking is maybe this is my like next chapter. Maybe I go back to being an artist and then all I have to do is make art and sell it for millions of dollars. And then I don't even have to run an agency anymore. <laughs> That's it. Well, what you should do that. I'm going to manifest that into existence. My later in life art success career. I'm going to, is that, it. Um, like, it wasn't until she was 40 that she suddenly became a famous artist. Well, I don't if I uh, I don't put it past you. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> so, what do you want? So, if I point people in the show notes to to see art, the art you're creating, uh, what's the best place for them to see that? So, the best place for them to see that is actually on my Instagram account, okay. along with the various books I am reading and lots of pictures of cats. Um, so if you're into any of those things, yeah. um, it's the underscore Nick Smith. Yep. And I'll put the link in the show notes too. That That's good. I think people should, should see it. Is it your hope that some of the stuff you're doing now, like, are you, are you trying to sell it? I mean, here I am like, what, what's the end game? Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but, or is it just um, like, yeah, what are you, what are you up to? So interestingly enough, um, my best friend moved back down here from, uh, New York and she and I met in art class when we were teenagers And so she has been doing art with me. We're kind of thematically playing off the same ideas. And our goal is to do a virtual show in November. And yes, I would love to sell these pieces. And what I'm trying to figure out is I want um, 
at least 50% of the sales to go to a nonprofit. I'm just trying to figure out what is going to be most relevant at the time. Is it bail bonds for protesters? Is it um, legal support? Is it, you know, one of the organizations working down at the border? Um, is it Black Lives Matter? Is it, you know, there, there's a million options. Um, but yeah, I would love to sell this art and I would love to um, be able to put that money towards a core cause that I believe in. Or yeah, and or a new career. And so, or a uh, new career. Yeah. If anyone wants to be my agent, I don't have an art agent. I don't know anything about the art business. So it's, it's again, it's my same MO, Jeff. I'm starting right. something brand new in an industry yeah. I know nothing about and I'll figure it out and it will either fail or succeed. You're heading west I'm heading and west. that's all you need. Exactly. I love that. You've got your compass Yep, and you're and off. I'm you're off. off to the races. Well, this was a treat. I learned a lot about you that I didn't know. And that's why I love doing these things. Like, you know, I've had a million conversations, but there's so many things I learned uh, that I don't know. I, I absolutely want to have you back. There's so many different directions uh, we could go. Um, but definitely let me know how I can help with the event uh, in November. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I definitely will. Thank you so much for having me on. I love chatting with you. I feel like you and I could talk for four more hours. So <laughs> yes. I'd love to come back on and and chat some more about robots and art and equality and, you know. Fake art. blood and racism. Exactly. And everything in between. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Nicola. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com. And I really do appreciate you listening. 